Navigating the Datascape with Chris Presley and special guests. Welcome to episode 28 of the Datascape podcast. I'm your host, Chris Presley. For some time, I've been interested in web-scale distributed databases. In previous episodes, I've covered Cosmos DB and Cassandra DB in detail. I've also touched upon Amazon's DynamoDB as well as Google Cloud Spanner, with more detail to come in future episodes. I recently got wind of CockroachDB and luckily happened to know an enthusiast. His name is Fernando Epar, and I've invited him to the show today to take us through the database and help us understand what it is, where we can use it, and how we can learn it. Hey, Fernando, welcome to the Datascape. Hello, Chris. Thanks for having me here. I enjoy the podcast a lot myself. Oh, good, good. It's, it's great to have you. So why don't we start with a brief overview of your career to date? Sure. I got, I've been working in IT for about 20 years, most of that in the backend side of things, several different roles, including small business owner when it was needed. And I got full-time into databases and MySQL specifically in 2009 when I joined Percona where I wore a few hats. And then in 2016, I joined Pythium to work in the open source database cluster where as an internal principal consultant. And while we work with you know, mostly MySQL, MongoDB and Cassandra, among other technologies. Great. So um, very familiar with open source database technologies and many of them. Yes, my entire, that's one thing, that good thing. My entire life, except from the very beginning, has been open source related in terms of IT. So I'm always used to being able to check the source code of things, even submitting small patches and all that, that I cannot imagine working on software if I cannot see what's under the hood. Hmm. That's a great point. We talked to a lot of closed source DBAs. So that's a very interesting point about open source. Let's dive into the topic at hand, which is CockroachDB. Why don't we start with, how did you get that name? Yeah, that's a funny thing to mention. Uh, actually, the name was probably the first thing that caught people's attention. If you go back and I came across CockroachDB in Hacker News. And the first phrase about it, like at least half of the thread was all about the name. I even did a presentation to a local MySQL meetup here about it. And the second slide had a feature request in, in the bug tracker about changing the name. And the, the goal, obviously, I guess, is it's very visual, good or bad. For people like me, it's bad, honestly. I probably dislike cockroaches more than the average person. <laughs> but it does transmit this idea of resiliency, right? Like it's durable. It's distributed. You probably don't want to imagine a distributed set of data cockroaches, but, you know, they, they get along. <laughs> they don't depend on a single one. And, you know, that like that's the nest, and the nest will survive even the failure of a few of them. So I think it's like that. And when I presented about it at a local meetup, I actually called the presentation a cockroach to be a database for the zombie apocalypse. And if anything would survive a zombie apocalypse, it's cockroaches, right? So that's like it's mostly durable. It tries to convey that image. Okay, so you kind of covered a lot of my next question, but let's go there anyway. Without the visualization, how would you <laughs> describe uh, CockroachDB to somebody who was interested and didn't know anything about it? Sure. Well, it's an open source or open core database. We can get to that part later, but there, there is some source code available. It's distributed by design. It is correct first. That's one of the first design goals. It supports replication, automatic sharding. It scales geographically. It's SQL-based. And there's another thing that they say. They say it's cloud-native, which the way I interpret, because that's very on the edge of the buzzword zone, is like it's easy to deploy in the cloud way, which is you fire up machines as needed. Well, Cockroach is designed for with that in mind. It's older database engines deploying. It takes a lot of work. We automate a lot of that, but you know that the DBAs spend a lot of time just deploying a new node, for example, or in integrating a new node into a cluster. 
Cockroach wants to take the opposite approach, makes the operations be very simple and make, you know, just adding or quitting nodes from a cluster should be a very simple operation, which is in line with the, the cloud approach of just scaling up or down as, as needed. There's a lot there that I really want to unpack, a, a lot of interesting stuff you just talked about. So is there a paid version and a free version or just a free version? And what are the differences? Yeah, exactly. There is an open source version or a community version and then an enterprise version. And the differences in terms of the end users, the biggest difference is there is an online backup tool that supports geographically distributed clusters on the enterprise version. On the open source version, you can do backups some other ways. And there is nothing preventing a third party, for example, from developing, if needed, some consistent distributed backup solution. But right now, that is on the enterprise version. And obviously, you get support with the community version. You just have the forums, which right now, it's, it's a very good way, but still, you don't get any kind of priority support. And then CockroachDB has something that we, maybe we can discuss it maybe later, but they support geo-replication, which means that you can control how and where you replicate data. And in the open source version, that includes, you can do that at the database and the table level, uh, while on the enterprise version, you can do it in the role level. Okay, let's actually go into replication then. Uh, how does replication work with CockroachDB and you know, how many copies of the data is there in the geo-redundancy and that sort of thing? Sure. So the, how many copies is configurable? And they put it in a way that you can think of it like RAID. Like you, you, depending on how many nodes you want to tolerate failing is how many nodes you need, right? So if you want to survive a single node failure, you want three copies per range. And a range, by the way, is like essentially a sequence of logically contiguous data that Cockroach redistributes among the, the nodes. So it's kind of like a shard or a partition, depending on, on which database you come from. And replication, so by default is three. So there's, there are three copies of every piece of data. So you need three nodes to have a minimal CockroachDB cluster. And this geo-replication that I was mentioning means that you can control, for example, where the data lives in terms of the physical location of nodes. And this has many applications. And one that is relevant right now, for example, given GDPR that is about to become a law and that you cannot only store certain kind of data on some parts of the world, but this lets you implement it. And again, the open source version lets you do that at the database and table level. And with the enterprise version, you can do it at the world level. Okay. What do you see in the community? What is the mix of closed or enterprise versus open source? If you were to guess at the ratio. Well, my experience there is from pretty much checking the forums and talking to people using it. And most people right now, seem to be on community on account that they are mostly testing new things. But they do have some clients. They even advertise them on the website. So you go to Cockroach Labs, there are a few clients listed. And I'm sure that as you scale, you do the benefits of the enterprise really would pay off. Just having support, even if you don't include the features, if you don't need the backup, which you do, but even if you didn't, or if you don't care for the role-level role geo-replication, just having access to the team that's writing the database for support, I think is a good enough reason for having the enterprise version. Right. Makes sense. Thinking about the replication, is there anything specific about how it works? For example, Couchbase, they pride themselves on a very fast and slick replication part of their system. Is there anything special about Cockroach's version of it? Yes. I think if we go back to the definition and what is Cockroach to be, everything about it depends on the concept of correct first. So the main goal is for the database to be correct you will have a consistent copy of your data at all times, and including if there's an error partition. That obviously means, because there's no such thing as magic, that if there is a wide enough network partitioning, your database may not be available. But it will never be writing incorrect data. 
So that impacts replication too. And obviously that means that in terms of performance, I mean, CockroachDB is not the database that I would look at right now if what I'm looking for is raw performance, you know, and, and that kind of scale. It's more like if you need a distributed database that is, by the way, SQL-based, which I think maybe I forgot to mention, and consistent, strongly consistent, so supporting serializable, for example, in terms of isolation levels, then it's good. And in terms of replication, it basically it relies on consensus. So if we can dig into that, if, if you want, yes. it uses Raft for that. Okay, yes. Yeah. So why don't you explain that a little bit? Yeah. So it leverages Raft for consensus. And basically, you know, I mentioned that the data is split into ranges, right? So you got a database. The database has tables, and tables have rows. Up, up until then, it's your normal, you know, relation database. Okay. But basically, cockroach split those tables into ranges, which are groups of rows by some criteria. Imagine, you know, primary key being in some order. Before uh, you move yeah, on, sure. are, are the ranges under the hood? Like, is that transparent to the user? Am I querying tables yes. normally? Okay. Please. You, yes, you don't need to know that. And that's a very good point. Uh, I mean, you do need some insight into that as a DBA, but not as a user. You can just write select star with your whatever criteria and you get the data back. So the ranges are assigned to a raft group. And there is one leader in raft in, that's called the leaseholder in CockroachDB parlance. And this node is the one that is responsible for accepting reads and writes for that range. So that means that if you have, you know, three nodes in a range with the default configuration, only one of them will be taking writes at, at any point in time. So it's not like a write scale solution. However, depending on, on some other settings, you may be able to parallelize things. And in fact, you do normally do that. But still, only one node is the list holder and it's the one that can, you know, respond to queries and all that. And the reason for that is to guarantee the consistency of what we're saying. Okay. Well, that's interesting. So I was going to ask you a little bit more about the correct first model. Can you explain the correct first approach and how that works? Sure. Like I said, the, the main goal is to provide the consistency level that you would expect from a normal standalone single node relational database, right? Like you fire up Oracle, SQL Server, Postgres, you, you choose it, and you have some assumptions that you can make as a DBA or as a user. You know that if you do begin, you write some data, then you commit, you expect that it'll work or not, you know, as a whole. That's kind of thing we take for granted. Now, when we move into the distributed world, that's a little bit relaxed. You know, it can be relaxed. It's more difficult to achieve for sure. And normally the, like the web scale to call them some way databases out there, they tend to relax consistency in favor of performance. So like then when you get into the whole eventual consistency world and all that, Cockroach does not take that approach. So consistency is not tunable. It's either all or nothing. And so it's acid, fully acid at the distributed level. If I could just jump on that, does that mean that during a write, a, a locking block is uh, placed on the write and blocking any subsequent reads? Yeah, so that's a good question. And first, I have to say that the whole details escape me. So in that regard, but what I can tell you, though, is that they use a, a mechanism very similar to Google Spanner. In fact, there is, if you go to the page, they say it all, they are pretty much inspired by Spanner in terms of how things work. And this means that there is some, they have synchronized clocks. Unlike Spanner, they cannot assume an atomic clock <laughs> like true time in the hardware because it's meant for, you know, commodity hardware, your normal public clouds. But still, you can use NTP, right? And with the NTP, you have some bounds on how much a clock can drift from one machine to the other. So the cockroach approach is, to me, simple and elegant in that they, you can configure that upper bound, say, to 150 milliseconds, for example. And so it's just waiting. That's the approach. to, to Instead of blocking, for example, if a write request comes in for the raft uh, list holder for a, a range, and then it just waits for that time. 
And if nothing conflicting comes in the time, the transaction commits. So you can think of it in a way as having you know, the extra round trip or having a slow drive, if you wish. You, know, you have this extra latency for every write, and that is the price you pay for this distributed consistency. Okay. What are the most expensive operations on CockroachDB? Yeah, normally what you want to avoid is, obviously writes is, is more expensive, but reads don't come for free either because they are consistent too. So there is a way to walk around that, by the way, because the database supports the as of system time construct for SQL. So if you explicitly request like older data because you're okay with that, you won't be waiting for any time. But if you just run a plain old select, the database will want to give you a consistent view depending on your transaction ID. And if that means that it has to wait, it will wait. Again, we're talking about the range of time of uh, your normal clock drifting in NFS. But the worst use case in that regard for something like CogWarsDB would be highly concurrent intensive writes that are writing to locally nearby data by index. So imagine a timestamp column that is indexed. In that regard, a lot of them will fall on the same range. And since there is a single list holder for that range, you are bound by the processing power of a single node and a single CPU. You cannot scale horizontally in that regard. The opposite end is the best. Like if you have random write access patterns, then that's the best because you have equal amount of chance of hitting any of the ranges and that can be parallelized. So in that regard, you just scale horizontally. You just add more nodes and the database just satisfy more and more queries in parallel. Okay. And what happens to the cluster when a database disappears? What's special about the resiliency? So on a couple of nodes, how does the cluster react? How does it detect it? And then how does it react? Yeah, so the cluster uses gossip to transfer information about the stats. So that's one thing in common, for example, with Cassandra. And as long as when a change is detected, it will react as needed. And that depends on the replication settings and what change happened. So for example, if you have uh, three nodes on a range and one of them dies, the two remaining nodes can continue to serve because they have majority, right? They can elect a new RAF leaseholder and continue to live on. If two of them dies, the remaining node can no longer work because it cannot have quorum. And that's important because normally people who don't have a distributed systems background, uh, like me, when I started doing this kind of work, you think of, okay, if, if one node out of three is down, but it knows that the other two are down, it, it could continue, right? In reality, how do you know if the other two are down or if maybe you lost network to them, but they're alive? So the only way to guarantee that the cluster will be correct or consistent when there's this kind of weird failures is to, as long as you don't have a majority, you don't do anything. You just don't serve reads or writes, you stop. And that's the way they do it. So like I said, the whole thing is very elegant and, and simple, at least on the theories, right? And not saying the implementation is trivial, but certainly the theories behind it are simple. Okay. And what about, conversely, you decide to add nodes to an existing cluster? How does that work? How does it get the data on the new nodes and, and that sort of thing? What happens to the cluster? Yeah, that is all handled for you. You know, it's, it's done behind the scenes. In that regard, you can consider similar to like Mongo, where you add a new member to replica set and, and it will be populated behind the scenes for you. Again, there is impact, obviously, because operationally impact, more IO, network, whatever. But as a user, you don't really need to worry about that. You don't need to automate it because it, it comes with the database. So that, that's handled by the database. Okay. And I should have asked this a little bit earlier, but what is the software written in? What language? It's using Go. So that's the Google language, which is kind of the project has some inspiration from Google Spanner. So, yeah, I have no way to know what Google Spanner is written in, but at least we know that they use that for, which is good for performance. It does have some VM. Uh, so Golang, if we go there for like a few seconds, is very similar to C in syntax and it has very good performance and speed. It's well known 
very good compilation times, it does have a garbage collector and a minor runtime. So, you know, that's one thing to, to consider. It's not the same level like a JVM pulses, but it's still a, a garbage collected language. Okay. And so w- what is the ideal Linux distribution to run it on? It tends to be agnostic. You know, it doesn't really make a, a choice in that. It, it's the same. You can run it in your own hardware, but it seems to me that clearly the intention of the authors is for it to be like a cloud database where you can just spawn machines and, and run it on there. It's it's very friendly with container technologies, so you can deploy with Kubernetes, for example. So in that regard, yeah, it does seem like a very versatile database. Okay. And as it is a cloud-scale database, is there a better cloud to run it on or and a worse one? Is there an ideal one? Well, I think the single most important, two, top two important factors for performance here would be like network round trip and in, in general, you know, network performance and clocks too in terms of NTP. So I don't know how to answer in terms of what cloud could be better, but if I were an end user, what I would test, I would do that. I would get a budget for testing. I would fire up instances in different cloud providers, and I see which one gives me the most consistent, you know, less time differences between NTP, less difference between the clocks, and the better network bandwidth. That's the two more important things for, for something like this. Okay, that's that's great, great value for our listeners. So let's shift gears a little bit, and let's talk about some real-world scenarios. Can you speak to some great customer implementations of the software that you've seen? Talk about like why they've used it, what they use it for, and that sort of thing. Yeah. So again, this is still rather green. Oh, by the way, one thing we didn't mention, right? The project was introduced in 2015. It got to 1.0 in 2017, I believe, early in the year, and it got to 2.0 just last month. So just to give people a timeline of how it is and what it got. And 2.0 most includes some new features like a Jira application per row, but mostly it was a lot of performance improvements. So with that in mind, there's still not a lot of well-known public cases besides what's on the web page from the company. If you go there, you know, you, you notice some use cases. It's typically about needing this kind of reliable, consistent, and distributed database. The fact that even though, for example, there is a, a single list holder for a range, Going back to what you asked me, do I need to worry about ranges? And, and I said, no. Also, the list holder is transparent to you as a user. You just connect to the database as a, as a global cluster and you write or read data and everything else is handled behind the scenes. So in that regard, you don't need any kind of special router that simplifies application development a lot. So that seems to be, to me right now, the strongest use case. Because if you want, you know, automatic scaling, but you don't need SQL, for example, you don't need that kind of consistency, you have other choices. And I'm not saying if they're better or worse in general, but certainly they are more mature. Like Cassandra has been around longer. We know it's Quirks, the same with other engines. So I think the strong use case for this is the fact that it's geared towards consistency. Uh, one thing that I forgot to mention in terms of the correct first approach, if listeners are familiar perhaps with the Jepson test suite for distributed software, Cockroach was, I don't want to say the only because I don't know, but among the few databases that incorporate that in their normal QA. So whenever there is a new release, it has to go through the Jepson tests, mm-hmm. and that will catch you know a lot of anomalies in the distrib- distribution layer. So it's really that's the selling point in my opinion. What that's what caught my attention. You know, it's refreshing to have a project right now that worries about being right first, and then we worry about being fast or anything else. But first, let's be right about things. Right. Because we're talking about data, right? 
Yeah, no, as DBAs, that's what we make or break our careers on. But what about a business use case? Like, can you think of a customer and talk, of course, without naming them, but a customer that you've seen or a a DBA talking about, you know, even their employer, can you talk about an implementation, like more from the business angle of things, like what it does and why they chose it? Yes. From what I've seen, it's being used, for example, in gaming companies. So whenever you have this requirement, you know, you have a global uh, need, you have a global application, you have users everywhere. So you cannot optimize to say, you know, okay, my users are going to come in mostly from the U.S. West Coast or no, you don't know. You don't have any specific high traffic times because when somebody is falling asleep in California, they may be waking up in Budapest, for example. So uh, that's a good use case. And I know gaming companies use it for that. Uh, oh, by the way, one thing that I forgot to mention is it has like a follow the workload approach with the data. So, for example, uh, let's say you have a three node cluster and you have two nodes somewhere in the West Coast and one in the East Coast. And if you, most of your traffic is in the West Coast, that's, that's going to be the list holder. But if the database detects that suddenly most of your traffic is in the East Coast, then the list holder for the active data in the East is going to move over there. It's going to be that node. So it tries to keep the data as close to the end user workload as possible. That's another use case. So, yeah, gaming is one. I have seen people in that tech using it too, not for tracking things because that's the app doesn't have the best performance, but in terms of post that, you know, you have a queue, a high performance queue, something like Kafka or something like that, you can take the inbound data. And then with this, you can ingest and do other things at the S4. It's still not there for OLAP applications though, and they say it openly. So right now it's more like an OLTP gold database. Okay, good. That's a really good point. Have you ever seen someone use it for an application where it just was a bad choice? And again, more from the business, like we chose it for this business case, this application that did this thing, and it wasn't a great choice because... Could you take us through one of those cases? Yeah, mostly the wrong choices that I have seen in the forum are just workload problems. And so it boils down to not properly testing your workload with a database. And in some cases... You don't really need uh, like an actual test, but just comparing it against the, you know, the features itself. And we get a lot of that, for example, in, on the MySQL work with Galera. You know, Galera is very good for many things, but if you have long transactions, then it's probably not the best for you. And this would be the same. So that's the mistake that I have seen people the most, assuming that it's really a general purpose database, which, you know, it's not. It's SQL based, so we can give you the idea, you know, like, of yeah, you can write arbitrary queries against it. That doesn't mean that the implementation yet is ready to satisfy any kind of arbitrary queries. For example, at the storage layer, it uses RocksDB. So that's a log structure merge tree. So it, does, it means that, you know, for some worlds it's very good, but for others, it's not the best. And right now, there is no, like, a storage engine API. So if, if LSM and Rocks is not the best for you, even if you need the distribution, you know, the everything else, it's not going to be the good choice for you. Okay. What are the database sizes like? What's a median or average size? Yeah, that's a good question. It's kind of an unknown. I was a little bit, I don't want to say disappointed, but surprised. Like if you go to the web page and you go to list of clients, only one of them has a size and it talks about two terabytes, which obviously for people working on databases in 2018, it doesn't seem like excessive. So I'm not sure that requires, you know, I don't think they chose it for the data size, probably because they had to have it distributed. That's, that's a more approach that, that you have. Okay. In terms of the query language, does their implementation of SQL conform to any standards like the NC92 standard or, or something else? Yeah, that's a very good question. Is PostgreSQL compliant? You can actually use the PostgreSQL client to connect to it. That has a, you know, some advantages among them. You can even use existing PostgreSQL benchmarking tools to run against Cockroach. 
So that's their approach. You know, they rely on this. It's compatible with passwords at the binary level and at the syntax level with some things, right? Now, not all of it is there. It's trying to be compatible with that. And I've heard people mention that as a good thing in terms of making it easy to migrate both in, but also out of it. Like you could try it for a new project. And if it turns out that it was not exactly what you were looking for, since you obviously meant to use a relational database by choosing SQL, you can easily migrate to PostgreSQL. You can just point the data at the client to you know the different URL and off you go. So that's a good thing in my view. I agree. I've been a DBA for or some aspect of, of database administration for 20 years. And you know, early on in my career was all about locking into whatever, you know, getting locked into whatever platform it is. And and nowadays you know, it's much more about choosing the right database for the job. And, and that choice is all about the compromises, as you mentioned. You know, do we prioritize consistency and uh, correctness or is performance what we need? And we don't mind losing a few records here or there. So, you know, it seems to be a, a lot about just the compromise and priorities. If that's engineering, right? I think for some time in our industry, there was this like like a revolution coming about NoSQL and all that. And a lot of good things came out of that, but also... A lot of things were just not wanting to know the past, you know, not wanting and not going. And then you can even go into like world like territory where people defend their tool, you know, to death. And I think as engineers, we need to do our job, which is to gather the requirements, you know, see what's needed and look out for what's the best. And if there's not there, see what you can fix in what is already available or write something new. But it has to be driven by the actual requirements and it has to be done in an honest way and not just because you like some project or some other. So, yeah. So I can share like my journey, right? And my main source of information is the forum. So you can just go to Cockroach Lab forum and, and subscribe if you want. I, I just, usually what I do is I, I subscribe to a digest and whenever a topic that interests me comes in, I just tag it to, to follow it in more detail, you know, and the company blog is, is good too. It is, you know, obviously there is some marketing there, but it's surprisingly technical. And then after that documentation, they have very good docs, but still not exhaustive. So, for example, when the Geo application at the road level was introduced, it was not documented a lot. A lot, you know, it was there, but not not a lot of examples. So that's why you know the forum is very important to monitor. And obviously, being open source and something that I've always done, source code. Source code is there. You can look at it. You can you know if you have a problem, you just debug it. I know that's not for everybody. In my case, that's normally how I learn a new system. Like I try to dive in and understand how the moving parts fit together. That's a good point. Okay, and that's very consistent with the Datascape mantra here, which is just roll your sleeves up, get the tools, and, and start using them and learning. So very good advice. So now we're going to go into what we call the lightning round, and that's where I ask you a number of questions about you and your career and work style, and you kind of give a brief answer with the first thing that comes to mind. Are you ready? Yeah, as ready as can be, at least. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, they're not too hard. What project are you the most proud of? Well, that's challenging to me. It's like picking among your kids, right? And I can't really do that. But the one thing, you know, to stress it again, I'm really proud of the community that I'm part of. You know, open source to me is a good approach to work. It's an engineering approach, so I'm not religious about it. But it's difficult to me to imagine how I could do my job if I couldn't, you know, attach a debugger and, and, and see how things run. So that's one thing. But if I have to mention something which is the consequence of this, of open source, like letting you adjust things. You know, recently for a Pythian client, I adjusted the, the audit block plugin for MySQL from Percona because they needed some feature that wasn't there. And so I did it for them and it solved the client problem. And on top of that, we could just submit a, a patch back to the authors. And if they decide to integrate it, everybody benefits at wide. So that's what I like about being in this community. 
Okay, very good. And could you name a book that's had a big impact on your career? Yeah, I can, but it cannot be just one, and I'm very sorry. It has to be two. So, okay, you can have two. <laughs> first one would be Notes, The Art of Computer Programming. I love it. It was not my first algorithm book, but it was the first book in which I like, I was awed by the algorithms there and how we explain things. And I think he can teach everybody a, legend, a lesson sorry, in humility, even when you're you know, this amazingly skilled person and you've done a great job. If you read him and if you even just hear him talk, He's very down to earth and, and super friendly and it's just a great guy. So I learned in a cheap paperback copy and now I am very proud of my, you know, box set of the hot copies of the collection. So I enjoyed that a lot. And secondly, and more related specifically to databases would be Kerry Millsap's Optimizing Oracle Performance. And I don't work in Oracle, but don't worry about the title. About at least two thirds of the book applies to any database system. And what I like about it is that it opened my eyes into the fact that whatever we do as DBAs, as dev, it has to be totally business-oriented or the user end. Like, if it doesn't provide a benefit that's measurable by the end user, you shouldn't be doing it. There's no point to it, right? It doesn't matter if we tell people, you optimize this, you know, ratio, or I have this shiny graph showing this. If the client has another need that they don't see satisfied, you failed at your job. So that's a book that I strongly recommend. That's spectacular advice. Excellent. And folks, those links will be in the show notes if you'd like to check them out for yourself. Do you use a standing or a sitting desk? Sit and desk, unless it's a couch or my bed. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> and are you using a laptop or a desktop? Laptop. And is that laptop a Mac, a PC, or I guess I have to say Chromebook? <laughs> no, it's a Mac for now. I'm on the fence with some of the latest changes, but if I have to go back to a PC-based laptop, it's going to be running FreeBSD or Linux again like I did in the past. Okay. And are you an iPhone or an Android user? iPhone. Okay. And what is the best tool or app that you use on a daily basis? That would be Emacs. You know, I introduced to Pythian Slack channel the Emacs response. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm a, I'm a big, you know, fan of the editor. I have to be honest and say that I use with something called Evil Mode. It gives me the VI key binding. So I'm the kind of person that if faced with a default Emacs installation, have to go to Google and say, how do I quit Emacs? Just to be fair and honest with people. But I love it. I love the editor. Okay, excellent. Good choice. Well, that's all the time we have for today, folks. The biggest compliment you can give us is to tell a friend where to find us or to write us a short, honest review on iTunes or your platform of choice. Thank you so much for listening today and have a great day in the Datascape. Navigating the Datascape.